Good morning and welcome to another Ursa podcast. With me today is Professor Filippo Today, an Associate Professor of Economics at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who recently moved to the European team at Goldman Sachs as a Senior Economist for Southern Europe. We would like to emphasize that in this podcast, the views expressed are the personal to Filippo and not representative of Goldman Sachs. Welcome to today's podcast, Filippo. It is a great pleasure to have you with us. Likewise, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you played a significant role in designing and implementing the labor reforms in Italy. When I looked at some of your research, I could see that there were some similarities to the South African environment too. And in your research on the Italian Jobs Act, you go into the lessons learned as well as the challenges faced from the structural reforms in Italy. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this today. What drew you to this area of research? Well, it was a combination of uh, belief and opportunity, if you want, or challenges. Um, Italy had been um, struggling to revive its productivity for a long period of time, uh, essentially since it joined uh, the euro area. Uh, the first response to that was uh, by some uh, um, sort of a labor market reform that uh, delivered a, a dual labor market, something that we're going to, I'm sure we're going to, to uh, talk more about it later. But then, you know, in 2011, the uh, sovereign debt crisis came in. You know, it was one of the consequences of the global financial crisis. Italy was under a severe, uh, came into severe stress. As a consequence of that, it introduced a very strong uh, fiscal uh, contraction that triggered a recession. The recession, the recession that started in 2012 and lasted all the way into 2014. So the structural weaknesses that were already there were basically came to the forefront. And that same concern for productivity that was there then became as extremely urgent to address. Uh, as that, in a sense, is, was the challenge or the opportunity to think more deeply uh, about uh, how we should uh, re, uh, reshape labor market uh, in general, labor market institution, in order to facilitate uh, the increase in productivity and reduce inequality, which at the end of the day, you know, when this is something that often is uh, not uh, properly uh, considered, whenever productivity slows down, you have uh, that the, the least, uh, the most exposed people, the weakest uh, people in terms of human capital, are also the ones that pay the higher price. So low productivity is typically uh, um, uh, combined with uh, growing inequality. In Italy, we had both, and it was you know, a good time to try to fix that, or at least address that issue with some more force and more strength than in the past. Okay, so you mentioned this low, prog this low productivity. Why did the productivity of the labor market become so weak? Well, it's not something that happens overnight. And it's not something that you can fix overnight, obviously. But uh, it's something that becomes especially uh, urgent or especially uh, taxing at one time over another, which is exactly what happened in, in, in the uh, crisis of 2011 and the recession that followed, uh, which, by the way, was the longest recession in Italian history from 2012 wow. to 2014. So it was a very, uh, a, a very difficult time. And the issue was this. The Italian economy is, is a manufacturing economy. Then it's, it's in the Euro area, it's the second most important manufacturing economy after Germany in terms of uh, share of, uh, of GDP. 
So manufacturing has always been an engine of productivity, but Italy has somewhat struggled to find or to retain its place in the global value chain in, in this uh, era of uh, increased uh, globalization. That was the case before uh, the global financial crisis, so it's something that Italy had before. And now, what, how did uh, the Italian, Italian policymakers respond to that need? They said, well, you know, if you need to adjust your productive system a little bit more than you used to, you have to introduce, introduce additional flexibility. And the way flexibility was introduced there uh, was by basically providing some very, uh, very strong relaxation of temporary hiring on the market. So the temporary workers were allowed to be hired and fired very easily, retaining pretty much the same degree of uh, protection, of employment protection for uh, permanent workers. So what that triggered was an incentive for entrepreneurs to do something very, uh, very simple. I mean, long uh, uh, entrepreneurs so with, uh, with a long-term view, with a kind of a more ambitious project, uh, took the opportunity of that uh, increased the flexibility to actually reorganize their productive system, undertake the appropriate investment, and move from uh, their, their business, from the standard course um, uh, into a new path. Unfortunately, this was not the case for the vast majority of entrepreneurs in the Italian system, which actually took advantage of this flexibility by uh, essentially hiring cheaper labor and retain the old uh, productive model, trying to compete at the, at the co on the cost side, trying to keep basically cost, uh, labor cost uh, somewhat repressed. That obviously didn't work, uh, made the economy weaker and weaker. And, and when finally the global financial crisis came and then the sovereign debt crisis uh, you know, uh, built on that, the structural weakness of the economy, or if you want the uh, side effect of the previous labor market reform, actually delivered uh, you know, uh, an economy that wasn't capable, it wasn't in the position to address the challenges of the time. So, you know, it's, it's just, when you think about reforming the labor market, the bottom line is, it's not just about the thinking how you want to facilitate the change and what is, uh, uh, whether you want a flexible or a rigid labor market, but it's also about uh, understanding how you want to spread that flexibility across all the people that participate in the labor market. Because the, if you just make one bit of the labor market flexible and you keep rigidity on the other one, these uh, policy might very easily backfire. Yes, and I think a large component is also understanding the, the nature of the structural weaknesses which you touched on. How does one go about identifying these? I mean, because that will affect, you know, which parts are rigid or, or flexible. So what were the structural weaknesses that you found and how did you discover them? Well, you know, there are some... Uh, there are some very clear signals there, okay? Number one, you see that the level of investment is lower than what it used to be. That's something that we observed across the board in Italy in, uh, in the early 2000s and then definitely through the global financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis. Investment today in Italy is subdued to where it was before GFC, uh, still by a large amount. Large amount means the following, just you know, to give a sense of, uh, uh, of what this means. Italy is a country that uh, where uh, investment, uh, 
properly defined in a macroeconomic sense, uh, the economist uh, way of investment, like not financial investment, think about real stuff, okay? Build up of plants, equipment, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, so anyway, that investment was 21% of GDP before the global financial crisis. And now it's only a 16, okay? 16, 17%. You, re you recovered a bit, now it's 18% of GDP. So which means that if you think about it, Italy is investing 3% less of GDP than what it used to be before the global financial crisis, where, where, where already productivity was not doing it the way, uh, was not going the way that one would hope for. So obviously you have a level of investment that is, is really a, an, an, a warning signal that you wanna keep it very clear in your mind. So low investment is number one. And then you, know, you have to be a little bit more granular and look at how the investment system is allocated in the economy. And very, you know, unfortunately, uh, what, the, what came, what, what caught everyone's attention was that the, the, the sector that were most productive or most likely to use poor productivity were the one where underinvestment was the most severe. This would trigger basically a very a bad, poor dynamic where low investment and misallocated investment pushes for low job creation. And the job creation that happens is typically tilted toward low human capital jobs. So what happens is that you end up finding yourself with a productive system that does not renew it, renovate itself quickly enough, where the jobs that are being offered leave people happy because their jobs are that require low human capital, so they pay low wages. And where, of course, the good people or you know the more productive ones they're high the one with higher human capital either leave the economy or remain or have a hard time to participate in the labor market as much as you hope okay so these are the three signals that you wanna you you wanted to to take in consideration when you evaluate the need for uh, to reform your labor market and uh, all these three things you know all these three factors are not where they uh, one would hope for, are not where they uh, were before the GFC, but they have uh, consistently consistently improved in since uh, 2014. So labor market participation has gone up, uh, uh, the number of employment has gone up, leave aside the current COVID crisis, uh, investment has increased from the bottom of, on the trough of 16% uh, is now 18%. So um, the economy is not back where you, you would like to have it, but at least it's on an improving path. So it's definitely going in the right direction. And so could you tell at me... Least, at least at least, that was the case before, before, yes. before COVID. <laughs> before I know, COVID. you know, there's a big question mark about what will happen afterwards. But yeah. Yeah, let's leave that. <laughs> I think we'll have to look at some more, some more reforms potentially, um, just based on uncertainty. But um, when we look at the previous strategy or the policy that was being used, how exactly, which parts of it did you then change in order to address these three structural issues? Well, we, first of all, we changed the perspective. Um, this idea that you, had, you needed to introduce flexibility at the margin is, uh, we thought was a, was a very poor approach. What? Because it created this uh, disparity between uh, insider and an outsider. Okay, so it makes sense that people that have been longer on the job. Why it makes sense that people that have been longer on the job uh, have been uh, participating for to the labor market for longer are somewhat more protected. You know, that's that's fine. Mm -hmm. That actually that is the efficient policy to do. But uh, it doesn't make sense that there is uh, that 
such a large disparity between the newcomers, you know, the, uh, the so-called outsider to the labor market, and the people that have already been there. So we basically moved from flexibility at the margin approach into a flexibility across the labor market. Okay. So and 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 we basically the idea was to say, sure, by increasing flexibility, we understand that we're reducing the level of protection on the job. Okay. But we're but you know it kind of uh, misleading to protect the people on the job only if at the end of the day what you're asking your economic system across the board is to change structurally, is to change fundamentally. So we said, let's facilitate that structural change by reducing protection on the job for workers, but by enhancing the protection of the job, okay? So protection in the labor market at large. And that meant increasing both the duration and the extension of unemployment insurance. It meant putting additional resources on retraining and and reskilling of people that had lost their job or that were in jobs that could not possibly continue because they required different skills. Okay, so this investment in uh, unemployment insurance and in retraining uh, the labor force that, uh, especially the chunk labor force that had uh, obsolete skills, was really the essential turning point from a you know philosophical in a general uh, in a general perspective uh, in the approach we had. Okay, and by doing so, of course, you know, as you might imagine, people that were uh, fully protected on with on the job were not, you know, felt threatened uh, because of this change. So I'm not saying that this was a, an uncontroversial approach, but uh, we thought that this approach made more sense, it went more in the direction of equality, and at the same time, it was actually more supportive of both structural change that we know. Uh, that everybody would agree is really what the Italian economy needs to do. Okay, it, not everything goes through the labor market, obviously, but uh, some of the, some of the things uh, go through the labor market, and you wanted to facilitate as much as you can post transition. Yes, and I think there's a lot of psychology in terms of the labor market and giving people comfort and having that stability with their work. So it's it's very very interesting, and I think. Also from a psychological perspective is you talk about changing people's perspective of the labor market. Could you tell me a little bit more about, you know, how you create that appropriate environment to facilitate the change? The idea there was to, first of all, to uh, explain to uh, people what was the overall program. You know, that this was not just, you know, we were not uh, uh, tweaking with details at the margin, like you know, it, it had happened in the past, and we already knew how where that would end up. But we were really changing the underlying structure of the labor market. So, if you even in, a term, in terms of sequencing, okay, of this uh, labor market reform, the, the steps that we introduced were all uh, informed by uh, the need. By, by what was the necessary, but by the uh, need to undertake a necessary step on one side, but also by the need to uh, help the transition for, for people. So we changed the structure of the permanent, uh, of the, of the permanent uh, contracts, of open-ended labor contracts. Before the reform, you have to understand that you basically, by and large, okay, but with, without too much, without generalizing too much, you could be a temporary worker where you could be pretty much uh, hired and fired at will. 
or you know if you ended up being hired on with an open-ended contract you would get a very strong level of protection which meant that if you, your employers wanted to fire you after hiring you on a permanent contract and uh, because you were not uh, the right person for the job or maybe the business was not doing uh, too well the employer would need to compensate the worker even you know few uh, few days after uh, the, the beginning of the contract with at least uh, a number of uh, months of salaries uh, of monthly salary between 12 to 24 months so obviously you understand very well that the moment in which you build this large step what are what was the reaction by employers and employers would do anything in their power to delay as much as possible hiring people on a, on a permanent basis and keep them as long as possible or, uh, under temporary contract that triggered all kind of uh, very poor dynamics because temporary workers are works on which employers don't invest much are works uh, that are not trained as much as you would wish for um, uh, these are people that uh, are the first one to be fired in case there's any problem so it created this disparity within the firm and of course it delayed very much their entry into the proper open-ended labor contract so what we did we said well protection on the job is fine and it's fine the protection is increasing with job uh, seniority but it has to be increasing okay so it has you have to start from a lower level at the beginning and then you scale it up for every year that the worker stays on the job and that's actually what we did we introduced this new uh, type of contract which was uh, now it's uh, it, it's been has been replicated in different uh, uh, shapes and form in, in other countries in Europe, that is the increasing protection contract. So a contract where the, employ the employee is protected, is more protected as uh, seniority goes on. Now, we understood that there was a reduction of protection for some of the people that would have ha been hired with an open-ended contract to begin with. Mm -hmm. So what we did, we uh, uh, combined the introduction of this new contract in March 2015 with extended and uh, unemployment insurance. So we reshaped unemployment insurance and also with a very large degree of tax subsidy for employers. So we basically told the employers, look, this is a new word that we're introducing. Pick it, you know, join, join the new board, hire people, hire it with, without thinking about it. Once you hire them, give them all the same, uh, all, all the appropriate amount of compensation, salary, benefits, uh, union rights, all the things that temporary workers de facto did not have. Give them the full package, okay? Hire them uh, in, with an open-ended contract since the beginning as much as you can. We'll give you a tax support for that. In case things go south for a piece of, uh, for a piece of match, the worker will have the opportunity to actually uh, being more supported by a stronger network, safety network mm -hmm. of unemployment insurance. But, you know, in case things don't go well, we understand that it is in both in, in, uh, in uh, both sides interested that that relationship might be discontinued. If employers are too worried to hire, they're too, because they, they know it's too hard to fire, what they do is that they delay hiring and they delay the investment that's connected to that hiring. So what we wanted to do is precisely to stop that delay, to facilitate that, to actually anticipate that choice as much as possible. So, okay. you know. 
it was yeah. controversial. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, yeah. and, but, it, and, but it made sense. In a sense. Yes, and you know, given that it was so controversial, how did people respond when you first suggested this? Did, were they excited about it or did they want to resist it? Um, how did that go down? I guess, I guess it very much depends to the, to the people that you talk to. <laughs> but I think, I think there's a general lesson there. Uh, yeah. Whenever you go for a structural reform, whenever you try to change the paradigm, like we were doing here, uh, you're gonna, every single policymaker will encounter some opposition. And the opposition is fine, you know, look, I mean, p different people are, uh, should understand that they might disagree with one another, they might uh, different incentives. Yes. So, I, I think by and large, uh, the trade unions uh, were mostly uh, uh, against this reform, mostly because there was a, a we have three uh, main trade unions in in Italy. So the, the the larger one, the largest one, was the most uh, uh, the stronger opposer to the reform. The middle one was actually in favor of the reform. The third one was somewhere in the middle ground. Employers Association saw the benefit of the new paradigm. Uh, young people, I would say, for the most part, uh, but they were they were the traditional outsider of the Italian labor market. Were I would say mostly in favor of the reform, uh, but you know, look once again, uh, you don't you don't plan this uh, uh, kind of structural reform to be uh, popular. You plan yes. them because there's a structural issue that you needed to address, and that you know that's I think uh, what was uh, what was our approach then. Yes, as I said, the hard truth. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, maybe, or maybe yeah. it wasn't the truth. Maybe. It wasn't I'm, 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 look, I don't want to uh, uh, seem. It, it's it's fine. We could have been wrong, uh, but yeah. uh, what I can say is that there was a, a consistent plan to go structural and to go universal here. You know, so yeah. it, it was that was really the the breaking point uh, uh, compared to any strategy that happened in the past of uh, playing at the margin, which turned out to increase inequality rather than the opposite. Yes, yes. So in the context of South Africa. I can definitely see some similarities. I mean, we also have a lot of um, labor unions. We've also have high structural unemployment and you know, our economy also experiences a lot of cyclical unemployment. So for those of our listeners who are thinking of applying these learnings from your research into the South African economy, what advice would you have for them? And is there anything you would have done differently knowing what you know? Um. Look, I, I, I think there are, it's important to understand, first of all, what is, what is the problem that you're trying to fix and be very open about it. So in Italy, uh, the problem we were trying to fix was, number one, structurally high youth unemployment. Number two, the fact that uh, when you, we looked at the labor market, at the cyclical response of unemployment, it was mostly, essentially overweighted on temporary workers. So there were some workers that were always paying a higher toll for whatever happened in the economy. And we thought that wasn't, you know, I mean, that, that might always be the case. There's always somebody that suffers more in any crisis. But in Italy, it was, it was a structural issue. So that's something that needed to be fixed. And number three, we were observing that the people that were uh, sidelined in, in the labor market were also the ones that would accumulate less human capital on which the economy would invest less. So 
the, the lesson that I got there is that I, I think we were, it made sense of it. We identified that there is three problems that I just described as the three problems we tried to fix. I think we should have been more vocal, uh, more explicit about how uh, urgent uh, fixing, addressing them would be, how much we needed really to, to, to work on that. And I think there's a little bit of um, the political risk that, uh, or the political struggle that we faced. On, in politics, you, 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 you always have two tendencies. On one side, you want to be uh, clear about what is the final objective. On the other side, you know, you don't want to get the stuck in the details of the process. Okay? Yeah. But sometimes, you know, that uh, those details of the process are important. So you want to be upfront about it. You want to be clear about it. You know, and understand that and tell people in, in their page, look, I'm sorry, but this is, gonna, is going to shake your world a bit and you're mm -hmm. going to be exposed to an extra risk here. But here, you know, because we think about, because we understand that you, have, you face that extra risk, here is an additional compensation, which we think it's fair. And being honest and clear about this, I think is uh, uh, something that possibly we, we lack, and that would be really my main suggestion, not just to South African policymakers, but to policymakers in general, as they think about the structural. Structural reform are about the structure of the economy. Be open about it. Let mm -hmm. people choose, or choose not to, but with a full open mind, because that also helps to keep everything together and also keep the discontent or the, the disagreement within the boundary of, uh, of a tight community. Yes, I think it's, yeah, I think it definitely helps if one can, can be clear and concise and direct, um, definitely simplifies things. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our, lis our listeners today? Uh, well, uh, from a substantial point of view, not really, you know, I just, uh, um, I just uh, wish uh, every, that everyone can see whenever they face some uh, structural uh, challenge in their society, in their community, in their economy, that they um, have the courage to tell each other the truth, to tell each other that the structural issue needs a structural change, and structural change are difficult. There are no easy way out. Do not, so be, be wary of the shortcuts, be wary of the quick solutions, because they appear quick, uh, they are, might be quick, but uh, unfortunately they are often not solutions. Yes, those are some very wise words. Thank you so much for your time, Filippo. Um, we could definitely chat for hours, but um, I think it's, as we said, let's be concise and direct, and this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having the opportunity to have you on our show. It was a pleasure to be with you, and uh, to, I hope uh, this conversation might be of use. Definitely, definitely. And just a reminder to our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are personal to Filippo and not representative of Goldman Sachs. Thanks again also to our listeners. And remember, for more updates, you can take a look at our website and social media platforms. This is your host, Margot G from the Ursa podcast series. Till next time. <laughs>